Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And we're continuing today in this journey through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today we're halfway through Matthew chapter 8 and we're looking at the cost of discipleship. I'm so delighted that you've decided to join us today. And if you're here for the first time, or maybe just been here a few times, then why not consider clicking on that subscribe button and make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. Please do hang around at the end and I'll give you some exciting news of some updates and ways in which you can connect with my ministry and the free teaching that I'm making available in the future. But other than that, I'll say bye for now. Okay, people, here we are. We're at Matthew chapter 8, and we're just going to be looking at verses 18 to 22 today and following on from these miracles that uh, Matthew has described for us. We're going to be just looking at the test and thinking about the cost of being a disciple. So I'll just begin by picking up and reading for you from verses 18 to 22, which says this. And when Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So after giving us these miracles, which Matthew's done in order to prove to us, to testify to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament, Matthew then gives us some information about what it will mean to be a follower of Christ. And he talks about discipleship. And he gives us this rather interesting story of two men who are declared to be followers of him, disciples, who come to him to talk about following him and being his disciple in the future. Now let me just pause at this point and say, because most of you have been with me on this biblical journey for a while now, you'll know that there's a difference between salvation, between achieving the inheritance, the blessing of being a child of God, and discipleship itself. Being a child of God is one thing, but being a disciple means that you're a student of Christ and a learner and a follower of him. The Greek word disciple actually just meant student or learner, and there's very clearly a difference between being a child of God and being a disciple, a learner, a student. So now at this point, Matthew is not talking about Jesus talking about in any way becoming a child of God, He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about becoming a disciple, a follower of Christ, a learner, or as a great favourite of mine, William Barclay, the Scottish theologian, he described it and he said probably the best word to communicate this in contemporary English language is about becoming an apprentice of Christ. 
So the first of these men in this narrative, they come to Jesus and he, and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And he's not just saying, I'm wanting to follow you on your next tour around Galilee. He says, I'm prepared to be committed to you for the rest of my life. But listen to this rather unusual response Jesus gives as a statement to this man. And he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus is saying, right, I understand what you've just said to me. I hear what you say. You're saying you're going to follow me. You know who I am. I'm the Messiah. And by the way, he's just proved that by the miracles he's done. But Jesus reminds him, look, I have no place to lay my head not even in the way the animals do. So what does that mean? Well, it means in a sense he's warning the man, telling the man that if you're going to follow me, this is not exactly going to be a life of comfort and ease. The life of being a disciple can be difficult and costly. And he's telling this guy, and they will the other in a moment in essence, that this is going to be a life of perhaps some physical discomfort And at that time, it meant following him, he would be on occasion sleeping under the stars. And he pointed out that even a fox has a hole to go into when the weather's in Clement and birds have a nest. But if you follow me, you'll have none of these basic things at times along the way. In other words, it's going to cost you, my friend. Okay, then the second person comes and says, so this is another disciple of him, and he says to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. By the way, it's important to remember that this person is someone who has started to learn. The very fact that they're described here as a disciple means that they've begun that process of being a follower, of following Jesus around and sitting under him, hearing what he does, taking in what he's teaching. But clearly, he's not a completely committed disciple. And that suggests to me that there is, to some degree, levels of discipleship and levels of commitment among people who are disciples of the Lord. Maybe some of us listening to this have learned things from the Lord, but we've really not learned all that we should have learned or certainly not applied some of the things that we've learned. So a disciple is someone that's already made a commitment to become a learner And this guy says to him, yeah, I want to do that, Lord, but let me first go bury my father. Now that sounds like his father has just died. And that makes Jesus's answer sound rather harsh, doesn't it? Let the dead bury the dead, he says. Well, if your father has just died, that would indeed be kind of a harsh thing to say to someone. And as a matter of fact, if his father had in fact just died, then he would have been buried within 24 hours. And the grieving ceremony would usually have lasted no more than a week. So what he's really saying is he is at the very least saying, Jesus, give me a week. And Jesus' reply is in a sense, it's like nothing doing. Let the dead bury the dead. But I don't think that's everything or exactly what's going on here. I think there's something else to be dug out of this text. You see, this phrase, let me bury my father first doesn't necessarily mean that his father had died at that point. Language experts who know about this stuff better than I have pointed out that he could have said this and it could have meant that his father was still very much alive. And what he was really saying is, look, I can't make a commitment until my father has passed away. And that could have, in fact, been years. In other words, Jesus is pointing out that this is an issue of priority. 
This man, he says, first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to have your priorities straight. You've got to be prepared to count the cost and get your priorities in the right order. I have got to be the priority in your life from this point forward. And I have got to come even before your father and mother in this occasion. Now, the point with this example used here by Matthew from the words of Jesus is the same as when he uses other examples when he talks about getting their priorities straight. That's the point. So when this man is saying, let me go bury my father, he is in fact saying, let me wait until my father dies. Now, in fact, I'm told today that this is a Middle Eastern and African expression that still to some degree is used today. I heard of a recent example of this. I talked to someone, interestingly, of course, in the West, in the UK, but it was about, they told him about a student who was a guy from the Middle East and they were students together at university and he suggested to that guy that after he finished his university, he join them and take a gap year and they should do maybe a tour of Europe together. But that young man explained to his friend that he couldn't do that. I would have to bury my father first, he said. So our friend, the English student, said, Oh, my condolences, I didn't realise your father had just died. And he said, No, he hasn't died yet. And then he explained, I must fulfil my obligation first as a son before I'm free to make decisions to do things like that. You see, embedded in cultural thinking in many parts of the world, outside Europe and North America, it's embedded so much that it no longer needs to be expressed in this very explicit way that this man did with Jesus that day, but it's embedded within the culture of those societies that it would be seen as completely unacceptable to finish your education and training and then immediately feel you're free of your obligations to your family and to go off and do exactly what you want with your life. They supported you through that time of training and development And there is an expectation that you should now fulfill that role and support your family and the wider family around you. And that, I believe, is in a sense is what is going on here, which is why Jesus says to him, let the dead bury the dead. Now, that phrase does strike us as a little bit odd. I'm sure it did me the first time I heard it, and it does a great many people, because you'll ask, well, how can a dead person bury a dead person? Well, of course, Jesus is using this word dead here in two different ways within the one sentence. The dead meaning that there are people that are spiritually dead, burying the dead, they're burying those people who are physically dead. I once read or heard where someone illustrated this point by saying, do you realize that on occasion the man driving the hearse can be physically alive but spiritually dead, i.e. separated from God? A man in the back of the hearse, in other words, the one in the casket, the one who's physically dead, but they are spiritually alive, separated from their physical body, but spiritually alive and present with the Lord. And that's what Jesus is going on about here. So we've at this point, we've worked our way through the first 22 verses of chapter 8 over these last, is it three days? And I think this is a good place to stop and remind ourselves again of the point of this chapter and the chapter that's coming, the big picture that Matthew's trying to paint for us here. The point of this passage is really rather straightforward in that it is simply saying that Jesus is the Messiah and part of how we know he's the Messiah is because he filled the prophecies and because of that and we recognize he's Messiah, then we ought to follow him. 
And this, of course, would have been a message which would have been particularly relevant to Matthew's main readership at that time, the Jewish people who were waiting for the return of the promised Messiah. But now he warns them, and by nature us who are reading it today, that choosing to recognise him as Messiah and then choosing to follow him and be a disciple of his will have a cost for you. And that cost begins with you making the decision to put him first. So in my conclusion of this part, of these first 22 verses, I'd like to finish today by making three simple observations. Observation number one is that this passage is teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And then the question is, how do we know that he's the Messiah? And we know that he's the Messiah because he fulfilled the prophecies. Now, we've only really looked at and focused on one type of prophecy and one aspect of prophecy in that he fulfilled it and how it references to what Matthew's teaching here in terms of the miracles he produced. But Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, there are many, many more than just the few we've referenced here. There are hundreds of them, in fact, and some of them he will fulfill on his first arrival and some will fulfill when he comes back again. There are at least two or three hundred direct quotations on the Old Testament of prophecies that are fulfilled in the New. And I'm going to quote some of them for you now, but I'm only going to quote the ones that in the New Testament that are applied to Jesus and considered to be fulfilled in their entirety in his first coming. There are many, many more beyond this. Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Deuteronomy 18 to 15. Ezekiel 37 to 24 and 25 to 27. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah is full of messianic prophecy. Isaiah 7, 14, 8, 14, 8, 22, all the way to 9, verse 2, 9, verses 6 and 7, chapters 11 and verse 12, chapter 28, verse 16, and Isaiah 53, that whole chapter virtually. Then there's Jeremiah in, in chapter 31, and then there's the prophecies of the birth and the placement of it in Micah, chapter 5. There are messianic psalms, Psalm 2, 16, 22, 34, 69, and 110. They're the main ones, but there are others. It's also talked about in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, and the Song of Solomon references the Messianic coming in chapter 2, verses 12 to 20, and then Zechariah 9, verse 9. Those references, by the way, will appear within the transcript. You can look them up later. But imagine this. All these people writing this down hundreds of years before Jesus Christ even appears. You know, there's nothing like this in any other religion in the world. There's nothing like this in any other book of literature. There's nothing like it in any other philosophy. There's never been anything like this on this planet. And just one way, just one way that we know that we can know Jesus is the Messiah is the fact that he fulfilled these messianic prophecies and that he authentic authenticated them by doing miraculous things but wait a moment you might ask didn't other people do miracles didn't people do miracles in the old testament as well as the new what makes the miracles from jesus different to those of elijah and elisha or indeed the in the new testaments with peter paul and the other apostles didn't elijah and elijah both raise people from the dead 
There are miraculous events described, done by mortal men in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even the disciples in the book of Acts did things that were miraculous. But the important thing, folks, is all these people did those things by praying to God. Jesus, he did them by saying, I say to you, Lazarus, come out, Jesus said at the doorway to his, his tomb. God may have on occasions given mortal man the power to do miraculous things, but there is no mortal ever who has been able to stand up and do those things in his own power. Jesus is the Messiah, and because Jesus did it in his own power, we're able to recognize him as such. And nobody has ever done anything like that before or since, and no one ever will. And that is what makes him unique. Second observation I want to make is, secondly, you should become a disciple, but that should be done by making a decision. Let me just explain what I mean by this. Our response to Christ as Messiah should not just be an emotional response. Let me, if you'll forgive me, get quite rational about this for a moment. If Jesus is the Messiah, then obviously we should trust him as our saviour and follow him as our teacher, right? Of course we should. And very frankly, on the other side of that, if he's not the Messiah, if he didn't die for our sins and raised from the dead, then as the Apostle Paul said, then if that's the case, we're still in our sin. And frankly, we might as well eat and drink ourselves to death. But if Jesus is the Messiah, what this tells me is don't waste your life, but you have to make a decision, a decision to follow him. I heard a sermon in the preparation of this message where the preacher said, and I've adapted it a little bit so it fits more with our thinking in these times, but it said basically Jesus had no servants, yet they called him master. He had no education, yet they called him teacher. He had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet they called him a king. He won no military battles, yet he still conquered the world. But on the other hand, he committed no crime, yet they crucified him. And they buried him in a tomb, yet he still lives today. I feel honoured to be a disciple of, to serve such a leader, such a messiah, and I'm ble- I am so blessed that God, by his Holy Spirit, has revealed the truth of his Messiahship to me. But never get away from the fact that the decision to accept Christ as the Messiah of the Old Testament and your Saviour requires you to make a decision. It's much more than just an emotional response. One final observation, observation number three. If Jesus is the Messiah, and he is, then we should follow him and we should decide to do that. But if we do that, then we will have to count the cost. And that's what we've been discovering today. Let me make it clear that this going to heaven, getting into heaven, that part of this is a free gift. The Bible says that in plain English. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 tells us. We receive that gift by faith and faith alone in Christ alone. It's a gift and I think it is the most needed message and gift that people can receive and is available to everyone on this planet today. But also because I think that the greatest human need at heart is that of knowing unconditional love. I also believe that this 
gift of God would solve a lot of the psychological problems that people wrestle with in life. Because many of the problems people struggle with today are the result of not knowing that they're unconditionally loved. The knowledge of the unconditional love of God revealed as Christ is incredible and that itself is also free. Romans said we were justified by his grace. Get that? Make no mistake about it. That's free and it comes without cost. But being a disciple, making a decision to follow Jesus and being a disciple for the rest of your life, that does come at a cost because being a learner is costly. And that means that we may face some discomfort and difficult choices along the way. Because that means you've got to put him first. And that is only the beginning. As we walk together through the rest of this Gospel of Matthew, we shall begin to see how difficult some of the requirements of a disciple are. So though the cost of discipleship to us can mean some hardship, the cost of our salvation was nothing. But we still need to count the cost of our salvation, for the cost of that for Jesus was everything. Salvation may have cost you and I nothing, but it cost Christ everything. The discipleship that follows on on that, however, will cost us something in this life because making Jesus the ultimate authority in your life will have its price. If you really make the decision and you want to go on that journey of discipleship with the Lord, you've got to be prepared to understand toll that that journey will take on your life. Jesus does not want you just to be carried away on a tide of emotional feeling because that will ebb and flow. Yes, he wants to collect with you emotionally at your point of need and that may involve at your point of salvation a great sense of joy or indeed a great sense of sorrow and tears. But having done that, he then wants you to make a decision to follow him. A few years ago, I read of a biography of the exponent Ernest Shackleton, and it talked about that when he was building up his teams of intrepid polar explorers, he was inundated with people offering their services. But he had to weed out the emotional, the romantics, as he described them then in those days, and the unrealistic by saying, yes, it's great to have you here and wanting to do this, but are you prepared, he said, are you prepared for the hardship? Are you prepared for the snow and the ice for the exhaustion and the weariness of all. And it's the same today for any young person who wishes to become an elite athlete or to participate at the top level in any sport. You know, you can start off and say, yeah, it's great. You love to play this game. You've got natural ability in your chosen sport. But are you prepared for the self-denial? To not be going out drinking and partying with your friends and following a healthy lifetime and regime? Are you prepared for that self-discipline? Because one without the other will not win the race or enable you or your team to raise the cup. Friends, it's true that there is no thrill in life like the way of Christ and there is no glory at the end that is better than the glory that awaits us. But Christ never said that the journey in this life of being a disciple was going to be easy. The way to glory always involves the cross. For him, it was the cross of Calvary. For us, it means surrendering, giving up the best of us. You see, naturally, I think we're inclined to be lazy. Naturally, we're often inclined to procrastinate. 
We also at times will experience fear and indecision and often a bad impulse will overtake us or a good impulse will not actually be acted on and turned into action. For some of you, it might be God speaking into your heart and saying, yes, you've got to make a decision, but you've got to make that decision and got to make it today. Saying today, for some people I'm sure listening to to this today, this is the very moment where they need to make that decision to follow Christ before it's too late. And they need to make it to do it at any cost. And if that's you, God is saying, get out of this life and get into his life. And he's also saying, be brave, don't wait. And God will give us the strength to follow on from that decision. But it will truly be a tragedy if that passes by as an unseized moment. I say to all of us that this passage reveals Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. And it also says, yes, there's a cost in following him. But there is no cost that is too great for us to follow him. And by doing that, we can be happy in this life, but better still, we will be rewarded in the next. Okay, folks, that's it for today. I do hope you find that helpful. We'll kick off again with the remaining part of this chapter tomorrow. If you are enjoying this, I would respectfully ask that you consider liking or sharing the link to this podcast with some friends who maybe you think would benefit from making that decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. I would remind you that there's always a transcript available of this podcast where the podcast is hosted, which is on thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com. You may be able to access through wherever it is you get your podcasts from, but I'm aware that some of the podcast apps and providers don't provide those active links. So thebibleproject.buzzspike.com is the place where you'll find not only the links to the transcript, but also places where you can access other free resources that the Miss Ministry offers. There's the Facebook page, the YouTube channel, and there's also places where I put more formal structured discipleship type training courses on places like Patreon and LinkedIn. So with that being said, thank you so much for joining me. You're enjoying the community of thousands of people around the world who have made the decision to make the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives from here on in. So thanks again. I do trust I'll see you again right back here tomorrow. Well, it's tomorrow for me, whatever day it is for you that you connect with the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.